Good morning. I also would like to welcome anyone that's visiting here this morning. Um, you have come on a day in which we uh, commenced a study here in the second section of John's Gospel, beginning here in chapter 13. We have been studying through this gospel for about a year and a half now. But we've entered into what is known here as the, the upper room discourse. The public ministry of Jesus Christ has come to an end. The judgment of God has fallen upon Israel. They have rejected their Messiah. They're not able to believe. Darkness has enveloped them. Christ has pulled away. He hid himself. And he gathered his twelve disciples in an upper room during a time, what's known as the great Passover feast, to where Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, will become the ultimate sacrificial lamb which takes away the sin of the world. People from throughout all the world, those that are his own, he would pay for their sin. So I invite you to open up to John chapter 13 and I will read verses 1 through 17. And this is the living word of God, which reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to, depur- to, depur- to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you, sh- that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than one than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the unfallible, inerrant, powerful, eternal word of you, Almighty God. And I pray this morning that I will decrease and you, you, Lord, would increase and communicate through me, your servant, your glorious, eternal truth to your church, that they'd be built up having a greater, richer understanding of who you are and what you've done. And Lord, for anyone here this morning who's entered these doors who does not know you, but merely know about you, I pray that today would be the day that you would cause them, enable them by grace to truly believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The incomparable service of the incomprehensible Savior. That's the title of this morning's message. He, Christ, loved his own to the end. Now, we all know that the magnificent and gracious love of God is ultimately made visible by the the fact that he chose to make himself known. Now, God has made himself known in a very general sense through, as the Bible says, through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Creation itself points to a creator. There's no such thing as a true atheist. The Bible makes it very clear. There's no such thing as an atheist. Those who claim and wave the banner of atheism are actually, as the Bible says, suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness. To the point where God turns them over to themselves to where they can't believe. That's general revelation. That is a grace gift of God. But there's there's a different kind of love that God has, a, a different manner of love in which he has bestowed upon those who are his own. Those sinners saved by grace, otherwise known as his true church, Not simply those who gather in buildings, but those who are truly, as John says, as Jesus said through John, those who are born again of the Spirit. If an individual is not born again of God, he cannot know God, Jesus said. It is impossible. That is the love that has been bestowed upon those that are His. It's a special love, it's a unique love. Particular kind of love. And his love never feigned. His love will never, nor can it ever waver. It's impossible. The love of Jesus Christ is unconditionally gifted to those who are saved according to his sovereign plan and purpose. Now, the disciples' love for Christ in response to his love for them did falter greatly, as does yours and as does mine. They, as we know, when Christ is arrested, they will scatter like sheep. We vacillate. We doubt. We disobey. 
But if it were up to us, our miserable failure, our disloyalty would be the cause for departure. If it were up to us to save ourselves, we would depart every time we met frustration face to face. Every time we let him down. But someone who's truly saved by the grace of God can never depart. Because of the work he begins, he's faithful to continue to the end. That is the love that Christ has for his own. God's faithfulness is not contingent upon our faithfulness. His performance is not subject to ours, nor is his love dependent upon our love for him. He's the initiator and he is the finisher of our faith. And his own here, he loves to the end, verse 1. To love them to the end, immediate context is his disciples, ultimately his church, his universal church, his true church. He loves them to perfection, to the very limits of love, to the absolute, utter end. He loves them and loved them and continues to love them. So, the end here is not the end of his ministry. It's love that reveals itself in the fullest measure when one lays down his life and gives himself away. He loved them loyally. He loved them to the fullest extent possible. In other words, he had always loved them completely. And if he loves them completely, the work he begins, he will finish. And the cross is the culmination of such eternal love. Calvary. Calvary. The bloodied cross. It's the only place that you can know him. Now this morning we will observe a teaching from Christ regarding his divine love for his own along with an object lesson of that love. And there's six points of focus outlined for you in your bulletin. We see the contrast, the confidence, the condescending, the candor, the cleansing, and then finally the climax. Christ loved his own. But the response of such divine love was not shared among all in the room this night. This is known as the upper room discourse. This is known as the, the inner sanctuary of Christ's love made manifest to those that are his. The holies of holies, as, as some scholars refer to John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, it is Christ's last night with his disciples. And then finally, in chapter 17, we, we read the glorious prayer of Christ to the Father for his 11 disciples and all those who will become his disciples, including you and including me. He said, I do not pray for the world. No, he prays for those who are, are his who've been called out of the world. That's the love, the divine love of Christ for his church. But we see a contrast here in verse 2. If you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to go back and listen online because we spent the entire hour studying verse 1 alone. So I go right into verse 2 this morning. We see here this contrast, a contrast of love and hate 
between genuine and fraudulent faith and ultimately a contrast between God and Satan. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We'll hold it off right there for a moment. The conflict was already set in motion. Ultimately, this is rebellion against God. And Judas was the human instrument who willfully opened himself up to satanic influence. Through the process of such evil submission, he sold himself to the power of evil. Verse 27 states that Satan actually entered him. And then he came under the devil's control. So here we see that Judas had already sold himself to the power of evil. It didn't begin this night in the upper room. He had already begun to plot with the Pharisees as to how he would betray Jesus, you see. You recall that after Mary of Bethany, sister to Martha and Lazarus, that night after dinner that she, she broke open an alabaster flask of very fragrant oil and poured it upon his head and it fell down along his body to his feet and she let down her hair and she wiped his feet with her hair. And then the hypocrite of all hypocrites stands up there in John chapter 12, verse 5. Judas, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Well, Scripture tells us that he said that only because he was a thief. He was the treasurer of the ministry money box and he used to take from it. He was given to greed. A greedy heart that loved the world, loved worldliness, loved money, and he hated Christ. But boy, could he fake it. Looked like the real deal. Talked like the real deal. Involved himself like the real deal. But he was a fraud from the beginning. Mark chapter 14, verse 10, informs us that after the event in which Mary anointed the feet of Jesus, from that very place he departed and Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. His motive now is coming to fruition. Judas was losing his grip on himself. His degenerate heart was ready to be exposed. He was striving and, and, and operating from the greediness of his own reprobate heart. That's who he was and that's what he was. But this was no surprise to Jesus. He had affirmed in a year prior to this very night, in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, his 12 disciples, Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is the devil? One of you is a devil. Judas was never true. He was never committed because he was never regenerate. He had never been regenerated by the power of God. Therefore, he never believed. Regeneration has to do with the new birth. It's, 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 it's spiritual life granted to a sinner. And Jesus said, unless you're born again, regenerated, you cannot see heaven. You can't understand God as he has revealed himself through Scripture. The things of God will be foolishness to you. The cross will be foolishness to you unless you are 
taken from a natural man and made a supernatural man or woman by the Spirit of God in you. That's grace. That's a gift. That's the work of God. Judas was not born again. He was an unbeliever in the beginning. He remained an unbeliever and he was an unbeliever to the end. He wasn't a believer who lost his salvation. You can't lose salvation. Nor can you lose something that you never had. And he never had it. In John 6, 64, Jesus said, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Christ knows the heart. <laughs> he knows your heart. He knows your motives. He knows your intentions. He knows my heart. We're an open book to the Most High. So Judas, who was constantly in the presence of perfected love and glorious light, existed and operated in hypocritical darkness to his suicidal end. He was sorrowful because he sold out the Son of God, so much so that he went and did not repent but hanged himself. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow always leads to death. It's only godly sorrow that leads to salvation by way of repentance. I've sinned against a holy God. Have mercy upon me, O God. I surrender. That's godly sorrow. Judas, worldly sorrow. So Judas here is the ultimate example of someone who can sit under powerful instruction, divine truth, become heavily involved in religious activity, know all the language, witness miraculous power, but never truly believe. Never truly believe. But even so, the center of attention here in this upper room in John chapter 13, the center of attention, the focus is the incarnate creator of the cosmos, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. It's not Judas. Christ is the focus here. And that leads us to point number two, the confidence. The confidence. Verse three, Jesus knowing, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus is not a man that we all agree is God. No, he's God who became a man. Jesus here being fully aware of his authority, his divine origin, was also entirely mindful of his destiny. By way of the cross, by way of crucifixion, his destiny, back with the Father in glory. Now all things here, it says all things into his hands have been given. It means that his lordship is absolute. That's his reign. His rule is universally comprehensive. In other words, those involved in the drama of his death, beginning with Judas, and then, and then Annas, and Caiaphas, and Pilate, and Herod, as well as the mob who said, crucify him. All of those will simply act within the sovereign purpose of God. They will act according to the sovereign purpose of Almighty Sovereign God. Jesus could have annihilated every one of them, one by one as he faced them. First with Judas, and then Annas, and then Caiaphas, and then Pilate, and then Herod. He could have spoke a word and sizzled them right on the spot. Amen? 
but that was not part of God's plan. D.A. Carson comments on this, quote, he says, With such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected him to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer. End quote. Their sin, their rebellion, and unbelief will simply publicize God's most magnificent act of service and love, which is the glorious bloodstained cross of Calvary. That's God's plan. So Jesus begins right there in the upper room with an act that foreshadows his ultimate act of service cross. This act of service that we see here precedes that ultimate act by just hours. Hours from this point, he would be beaten, mocked, spit on, his, his, his back just laid open with a cat of nine tails. Beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a cross. And what's on his mind? Serving his own and loving them to the end. Do you understand if you're in Christ what he's done for you? (laughs) Now, there was something that occurred prior to this upper room supper. Pretty much in root of this supper, Luke records it for us in chapter 22, verse 24, that says this, Now there was also a dispute among them, the disciples, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. You see, their ignorant assumption was that Jesus was about to institute an imminent, physical, governmental kingdom. And they argued who would be the greatest. Who would sit on his right? Who would sit on his left? Who is greatest out of the twelve? That's what they were concerned about. But Jesus is about to redefine what greatness is. That leads us to point number three, the condescending. The condescending act of the Son of God washing the filthy feet of his sinful disciples and ultimately foreshadowing Christ cleansing the sinful souls of mankind. Your sinful soul, my sinful soul, if you're in Christ. Only if you're in Christ. Condescending, verse 4. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, in Jesus' day, people walked the dusty roads. Majority of people walked wherever they went. And they would wear only sandals, or some people would actually go barefoot. And in the process, you would your feet would become covered with dust or dirt, or in the winter, caked with mud. Now, proper etiquette demanded that when a traveler entered a home as a guest, the host would provide the washing of their feet. 
I invite you to my home, and this day, and you come over to dinner, you'd walk in, you'd have dirty feet. I would provide service for you if I perhaps owned a, a slave, a servant, i.e. an employee of my household. They would do the menial task of washing your feet. Or I would at least provide the basin and the pitcher along with the towel for you to wash your feet when you entered my home. But this task was usually performed by an ordinary household servant. Think about this. Now, this was unheard of to Jews. They wouldn't, Jews weren't going to bow down and wash anyone's feet. They, it was unheard of to wash the feet of a peer. That was a task for a slave, not a Jewish slave, a Gentile slave. But you recall the words of John the Baptist as he's out preaching in the wilderness, John chapter 1, verse 26, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. You see, in Jesus' day, disciples would perform all kinds of services for their rabbis. There's many rabbis in Jesus' day. Jesus was just the rabbi of rabbis. They would serve many tasks, but one of them was not unloosening the sandal strap because to unloosen a sandal strap was a, was a pre-picture, if you will, of actually washing someone's feet. It was considered a menial task, fit only for a Gentile slave. But John the Baptist recognized that he was not worthy to bend down and perform the most menial task. Not, not simply washing his feet, but untying his sandal in order to wash the feet of Jesus. He was unworthy for even that task. John the Baptist had the right perspective of Jesus Christ. And here's Jesus, the sovereign God Almighty, who takes the place of a servant, servant i.e. slave. So in the middle of dinner, Jesus rose up. All things were indeed in his hands, yet he picked up a towel. So this, the imagery here, it's astonishing if you think about this. First of all, washing was not customarily performed in the middle of dinner. That would be like having you or I going to a formal dinner. We just finished working in the garden. You've got dirt caked in your fingernails and in the, the pores of your hand and you go to reach for the mashed potatoes and there's your dirty, filthy, rotten hand sticking out there. And then you break and go wash. At this point, in this room, the disciples would have been gathered around a low table just inches off the ground. They would each have been provided a mat. They would lay down on that mat on their left elbow and their feet would extend out from the table and they would have their hand, right hand free to eat. To pull, to dip, to eat. So your feet would be next to the head of someone. It would be discourteous to have crusty feet, dirty feet, dusty feet next to the head of someone who was your peer, your friend. So here they are. Dining, dirty feet, and then all of a sudden Jesus gets up in the middle of the meal and he takes off his garments, plural, down to a loincloth as a Gentile slave would be attired. He goes near to the door 
He takes this basin, he takes the vessel of water, the pitcher, and pours water into the basin. He takes the towel, he girds it around himself after having taken his clothes off, leaving a portion of it hanging in order to kneel down and wipe the feet of these men. This was unheard of. This kind of task was looked down upon by Jew and Gentile alike. And here before their very eyes, the Lord of glory is kneeling down to wash their dirty feet. He's moving from one disciple to the next. Then he approaches Simon Peter. In verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, at this point, the disciples would have been devastated. They'd have been stunned by this act of service. Embarrassed, speechless, Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher, our Lord, our Messiah, washing our feet. See, when we think of God, when we think of Jesus Christ, when we think of Messiah, we think of power, right? We think of God in terms of power, but power and this kind of humility in our minds is like water and oil. Power doesn't mesh well with this kind of humility. And Peter too sees the Lord who serves as very hard to comprehend. A Messiah who serves me like this, not going to have it. So he speaks up as usual. And typically, I'm sure, because he was so outspoken, that there's many times the disciples, the other ones, wanted to say something, and they knew that Peter would speak. If they just keep their mouth closed long enough, he'll open his. And certainly, he probably speaks what they're thinking. I mean, imagine Peter watching this event take place. And he kneels down in front of Peter in the midst of what's almost certainly dead silence here in this room at this point. And he's likely thinking, Messiahs shouldn't stoop like that. The Lord ought not to be serving like that. Now, if you recall, Jesus said earlier that he was to go to the cross. And Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are mindful of the things of man and not the things of God. So, Peter asked, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, this is an exasperated response. He's saying, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And then Jesus answered him in verse 7, what I am doing, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now, Understanding afterward is not referring to after the meal or after the foot washing, but after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and then after Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit falls upon the church, then he will understand this. But for now, it's another allegorical teaching of Christ that to them is over their heads for the moment. It's not clear in their minds, but it will be. You know, this act in this room was of greater significance than, than any lecture Jesus could give in at this point. 
And I'm sure that the 11 disciples from this evening onward were the first ones to rush to the doorway to grab the towel, to grab the basin, to grab the pitcher, to wash one another's feet. This would have been in their minds from this day on, etched in their hearts. Certainly it was this very night that was inscribed upon the heart of Peter when he wrote 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, that says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Recalling this very night when the God of glory clothed himself in humility, he pens the God breathed words of scripture but at this moment in time he doesn't get it verse 8 Peter said to him you shall never wash my feet the pronouns you and my are emphatic he's saying no you shall never wash my feet ever or never shall you not while eternity last Lord wash my feet but see proud men proud women have a problem being served by someone greater than themselves. You know, we think we can do it all ourselves. There's many people, many people whose lives are just going along quite well. Well, they don't need God. I can work this thing out myself. I can make my way right with God. No, you can't. You're lost and you're doomed if that's your thinking today. You will see through the words of Christ Himself. You're doomed. You can't earn your salvation. You can't get yourself right with God and then come to Jesus. Wrong. Dead wrong. If that's your thinking, you're on the broad road that leads to destruction, which is hell. That's the epitome of self-deception right there. To think that you don't need this kind of service from Jesus Christ. Next, notice the candor, the clarity of Christ's divine redemptive work. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no part with me. So Peter thinks he's being humble, I'm sure, when in reality he's filled with pride and ignorance. Any one of us, I'm sure, would have stopped Christ at this point. Because we simply are ignorant as to his greatness and our desperate need. Our desperate need from the one whose image we're created in. You see, the Jew, in their mind, they could not understand a humiliated Messiah. And most of them refused to believe that. That's why they rejected him as a whole. As a nation, they rejected their Messiah because of their preconceived ideas as to who Messiah should be. Israel's waiting for the Messiah today. He's come and gone. Back to heaven. So Jesus is showing them here an illustration, a hu illustration of humiliation. See, what Jesus says, as I understand it, is this. What you see, Peter, is what you get. This is the kind of Messiah I am, and I'm the only kind that there is. This is it. I am. And without me, you're lost. 
William Hendrickson comments on this, and he says this, quote, The meaning is simple yet very deep. Peter, unless by means of my entire work of humiliation, of which this feet washing is only a part, I cleanse you from your sins, you do not share with me in the fruits of my redemptive merits. What Christ was, he shares with his own. End quote. You know, in Romans 8.17, beautifully explains this truth, which says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Don't miss this. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You are a fellow heir of Christ if you are indeed in Christ. If you don't want this, you don't want me. This is what I do, and this is who I am, Peter. I provide it all. Utter humility. Service. Here and now and forevermore. So when Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, he wasn't making a threat as much as he was declaring a fact. An eternal fact. You see, Peter saw this great gulf fixed between service and lordship, but for Christ, there is none. There's no gap. They're interwoven. Lordship and service. Without Christ's service to you on a daily basis, you have nothing. No salvation. He's our mediator. And there's one mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man Christ Jesus. He provides access to the Father. And this has always been part of God's character. You know, many people think that the serving spirit of God began with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's when Jesus became a man that that's when this servant spirit mindedness of God was made manifest. Wrong. It is the loving spirit of God that led to the incarnation, you see. From eternity past. This is who God is. providing loving service to fallen, wretched, rotten, sinful men. So the incarnation of Christ, this act of foot washing, was a visible expression of what was always part of the Godhead. Always has been, always will be. A unique, specific kind of love for those that are his own. And those that are his own, he loved to the end. It's very important that we don't miss that. You know, when we gather to worship, we were singing here together this morning, corporately, as individual sinners saved by grace, corporately as one joined together in Christ. He's the head, we're the body. Our wonderful worship team here is leading us. The only reason you can serve Christ if you're serving from a, a pure heart is because of Christ. By the Holy Spirit, He enables us to praise Him, to serve Him, and to glorify Him. It's not you. No, it's Christ in you. The servant of servants. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for who? For many. Many. And this kind of love is what motivates or enables us to serve and worship. Amen? And we'll see that in the coming verses. So Jesus overcomes Peter's resistance here by assuring him that only the washed... Only the cleansed belong to him. Pure. And there's a much deeper meaning to Jesus' action here, which Peter will later realize. 
So if the Lord of glory, the creator of the cosmos, doesn't serve you in this manner, in this manner right here, there's no hope for you. Or any individual for that matter. He must serve as the one who bathes the sinner in his righteousness, and it's only by his blood. If you're not covered by the blood, you don't have God. If you're covered by the blood, you have God because he has you. He owns you. He bought you. That's redemption. To buy back at a great price. So this washing here, this foot washing, is simply an illustration of man's utter necessity to receive cleansing from an outside source. No one can cleanse themselves like this. That's the picture that Jesus is drawing here. A simple foot washing to express divine, spiritual, eternal truth. God cleansing the sinner. And there's nothing that man can do to provide, to help, or to save himself, spiritually and eternally. It's impossible. So the point is, the absolute necessity of being a recipient of Christ's humiliation in order to be saved. Necessity. Not one of many ways, the only way. It's essential, for without which, you cannot be clean. So in verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's one extreme to the other. So Peter basically replying here, as we'll see with a big oops, a big oops here, not understanding, he says, okay, Lord, then wash all of me. And Jesus replies, no, 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 Peter, you don't understand. You don't get it. And that leads us to point number five, the cleansing. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, the social custom behind this analogy was very common. If I were to invite you in this day, let's just say uh, I'm going to have you over for dinner. Prior to attending my home, you would bathe. Custom courtesy. Uh, courtesy. Thank you very much. <laughs> Having you for dinner, bathe yourself. Right? That's what people did. You would take a bath. And then as you would walk to my home in your sandals on dirty, dusty roads, you would pick up dirt on your feet. You would enter into my home with dirty feet. Being my home, I would provide a foot washing for you prior to sitting down and eating. So therefore, all you need, you just had a bath, you just need a foot washing. You don't need another bath. You wouldn't come in and strip off and go behind the curtain and take a bath. You've already had one. Just picked up a little dirt on the way. So Jesus takes this ordinary custom, he draws this great, great spiritual analogy from it. And this is what it pictures. By coming to Jesus Christ, by way of repentance and faith, you've been given a bath. By coming to faith in Jesus Christ, by way of repentance, Peter has been bathed. He's washed. And theologically, this is referred to as justification. Justification by faith alone. You receive a new status when you're justified. It's a legal declaration. Declared free from all blame. That's what the bath does. That's what being born again does. That 
is the gift of God by grace alone through faith alone. Justified. Because of regeneration. And regeneration is the experience of this new birth. Spiritual life in Christ. Through regeneration and justification are once and for all acts of God. One time. When you're born again, you don't get born again again. You're born again once. You're physically born once. You can't go be born physically again. You're born once. But the person that comes out of the womb of their mother, because they have a nature that's sinful, they must be born again spiritually. That happens one time. That makes you accepted by the Father. You're made righteous, washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism in water symbolizes. No one goes to heaven because they've been dunked in some tub somewhere or sprinkled when they were a baby. You don't get to heaven that way. Baptism for the believer, the repentant sinner, by faith alone in Jesus Christ, by grace alone, represents this cleansing and this new life of regeneration. You see, that's all it does. It's a representation of a great reality that's taking place on the inside. Spiritual bath. One time. Now, many people think they were born again at one time. They had some emotional experience and they depart and they in no way represent someone who knows Christ and then they go think they got born again or they rededicated or whatever. The reality is, if they truly repent years down the road, the reality is that's probably when they were truly born again. Prior to that, it was just seeds of truth planted. So this is a once and for all act. It's, it's, it's a bath once and for all and forever. Nevertheless, having been given a bath spiritually, having been born again, we walk through this world, a sinful world with still fallen sinful flesh. We sin every day in, in, in either word, deed, or action. And what do we do when we do that? We come to what? the throne of grace, and we confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. Who's the us? The true church. Those who've been bathed. That's us. Our sins, and He, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So if you think you're not a sinner, you're a liar and you don't have God. Let's cut to the chase. So Jesus served them and he serves us ultimately on the cross and yet still he continues to serve us this very moment. We must have this down. He serves you. Without which you can't serve him. He enables you. He empowers you. He anoints you to serve. Now when we talk about Christ being our servant or serving us, we're not speaking in terms of like a genie or, or, or some kind of fortune teller providing your best life now. No, not that type of servant. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ and Him in you. Representatives of Him. And as Romans chapter 5 declares, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Because of this bath, you have peace with God. You're no longer at war with God. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. 
Now look at that verse, Romans 5.1. Justified, there we have. We're declared righteous by God. That's a once and for all act. And then this grace in which we stand refers to the blessing of justification. You were saved by grace in the beginning, and day by day by day, this is the grace in which we stand. This is your position in Christ, positional righteousness because of that bath. If all you've ever had is a foot washing, associating yourself with church activity, and you've never been born again, you haven't been washed. You're still filthy. You're a sinner, separated from God. He served us. He serves us. He always will serve us. For without Him serving us in this manner, we have no ability to serve Him, let alone be saved, you see. What a beautiful picture of Christ kneeling down to the wretched, rotten, dirty feet of sinners. He's our mediator. Verse 11, For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Now, having moved around the table, the Lord of glory knelt down, washed the feet of all twelve, including Judas, the one who was ready to betray him. Already determined to do so. None of those 11 ever, ever knew that Judas was the one. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, what did they say? Lord, we know it's Judas. No, they said, Lord, is it I? He was a great actor. That's what hypocrite means, actor. He played the part. He was a counterfeit and he knew it. Jesus always knew it. Judas never had a spiritual bath. He only appeared to be clean. You know, scores of people attend church. They partake of the Lord's table, communion. They profess Jesus Christ with their mouth, but they've never been bathed in Christ and washed by His blood, ever. All they've done throughout their life is lend themselves to religious activity. They're deceived. Others simply play a game. You must be bathed. Are you bathed? Are you washed once and for all and forever? You must be born again. You need a Savior. He's the only one. If you're in Christ, you've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been purified. You are as perfect in the sight of God the Father as Jesus Christ himself is. That's righteousness by imputation, placed upon your account, made whole because of his blood. Here now we move to the last point, the climax of the narrative. And and through this profound truth, Jesus now is going to teach them a lesson. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, having washed their feet, Jesus has provided for them a living illustration of his divine love for his own, which verse 1 begins with. He loved his own to the end. Jesus is asking you, do you grasp what I, am, I, your teacher and Lord, have done for you? Do you comprehend this truth? Now notice, 
I am your teacher and Lord. That's what you call me. That's what I am. Jesus has never denied his identity as Lord God Almighty or Rabbi. And here again, he affirms that truth. But then in verse 14, we see an argument from the greater to the lesser. Now notice, he's reversed the titles from teacher and Lord to Lord and teacher. So he says, Since I, your Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash. And at this point, they could have finished the sentence for him. So embarrassed, so humiliated, they would have finished the sentence. Yes, Lord, I understand. You're Lord, you're teacher. You've knelt down, you've washed our feet, and we certainly ought to in return wash your feet. But Jesus throws a change up. And he says, no, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, any one of them or any one of us would bow down and wash the feet of Jesus. That takes no humility just simply because of who he is. Now, he says, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, ought is not you should or it's best if you do. This is a great suggestion if you want this or you want that. No. It's a word that means you are now morally obligated. You are indebted to wash one another's feet because of what I have done for you. Now, his point is this. Because you've been forgiven so much by Having been given beyond much, you are therefore commanded to do such. He's the head, we're his body. We are his church. He is our master, he is our savior, he is our Lord. You know, the church is often the victim of this this worldly spirit of criticism and, and competition. Believers, they begin to contend with one another to see who's the greatest in, in some body some local assembly. And it's a critical virus that takes hold of one or two and three and then it spreads. And then it begins to affect the, the, the attitude of, of the entire church. It's an attitude of self-dignity or, or arrogance. You know, I've witnessed men and women, mainly men, progress in knowledge, deep knowledge of God, and actually regress in humility. That is an ugly thing to witness. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow! Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You know, the church is often quite comfortable in growing in knowledge. That's a good thing. But not in and of itself because they refuse to grow in grace. They hinder growth in grace because of pride, because of arrogance. To grow in grace is to grow down in humility. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You'll only grow up in Christ-likeness when you grow down in humility. To grow up in Christ-likeness is to grow down in humility as Christ knelt down to wash the feet of these men and to die for you. Andrew Andrew Murray, 
He writes, quote, Humility is the only soil in which the grass, graces rather, root. Humility is the only soil in which the graces root. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. If you want to, if you want to determine from where division in the body comes to, you'll, you'll chase it back to a lack of humility. Contention, lack of humility. Arrogance, lack of humility. Jockeying for position, lack of humility. Failure to serve, lack of humility. Verse 15, For I, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, a number of Christians throughout time have taken this word of Christ as a literal act to be followed. Like uh, some of the Mennonites do. Seventh-day Adventists actually instituted this as one of the ordinances. They actually incorporate foot washing into their communion services. But that, however, is not what is being conveyed here by Jesus whatsoever. What he's saying is that you should do like as I have done to you. Not that which I have done to you. You do like as I have done to you. You know, I've sat and listened to men teach on this text, usually in a devotional type of setting, uh, church staff type of setting, even in some services, and he'll finish up and all of a sudden the lights will go dim. And then from outside of the exits comes three or four men with basins of water in hand and towels over their shoulder and they, hey, everybody take off your shoes now, we're going to serve you. Okay, I understand that the picture is, is, is a beautiful picture, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not referring to an outward ritual, but rather to an inward attitude. What purpose would foot washing serve us today? What? It would become a ritual, very ritualistic. What Jesus meant was for us to love one another. And if we love one another, we will serve one another in like manner. With this type of attitude. Not as a form of servant, is, is, is a form of service or some ordinance, but rather an understanding that no task is below us or too dirty for us. Because the Lord of glory stooped to do the most menial task of the culture in that day. So our moral obligation is to love one another and to serve without regard for personal dignity. When that's lost, it's disastrous. Men will sit with their arms folded. We'll see if you can teach me something today. You know? I'm pretty well read. Let's see what you got, big fella. Or they become a pew sitter, a bench warmer. All they do is observe. They watch everyone else serve. They begin to be, you know, become a sermon critic or a ministry critic. But they lack, lack this type of spirit. This is our moral obligation. Some examples of foot washing today. There's people through that door, straight ahead, changing the diapers of your kids. 
There's a modern-day foot washing for you. Teaching your teenage kids, there's a foot washing for you. Now, the church's purpose is not to raise your kids in Christ. That's your job. We're just teaching them what it means to gather together corporately in Christ. Service. There's people who come and clean the urinals and they clean the toilets and they clean under the toilets and they vacuum the rug and they dust and they clean. You don't even know who they are. That's a foot washing. People lock themselves away in a dark room and they pray during service on your behalf and on my behalf. That's a foot washing, intercessory prayer. Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Many men stand at pulpits today expecting to be served, especially when they gain a large platform. Not so. Teacher doesn't roll in, with papers in hand, teach and roll out. There's a time for that sometimes, for the protection of the individual, but nonetheless, within the local assembly, no. We don't play like that, as they say. Amen? But as I talked about the pew sitter, they attend, they sit, they listen, they leave, sometimes embittered. They have a, a flawed perspective as to what service is. Not by embracing it, but by not being served as they presume they ought to be served. And all too often, an active church member forms an attitude of self-pity, self-focus, self-indulgence, because they cannot see clearly the servant-mindedness in the heart of Christ. All you can do is look in. You will be miserable. No one is more miserable than we ourselves as we look inward. Pathetic place for us to be. And then there's no blessing because there's no appreciative heart or, or, or thankfulness towards the blessed one. The servant of servants. Our savior. Must have our eyes affixed on Christ. So the love and the majesty of Jesus Christ ought to be that which obligates us and drives us to such service. You only can serve him because he first served you and still serves you. You can only love him because he first loved us. It's all Christ. It's all Christ. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It's all about Christ. That's why we don't do sermon series, sermon series about five steps to a better this or that or a better you. It's all about Christ. The glory of Christ. It's this kind of service for one another that the world recognizes. See, the church gets it mixed up. They think, well, we need to go do philanthropic good so we, we can act, and act out the gospel instead of just proclaiming it. No, we'll go pick up garbage and we'll go do this and that. And the world will see our love for them and change. Wrong. The world will notice Christ by the love that you and I have for who? For one another. John 13, 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The church, the household of faith, the body, the local assembly, the redeemed, his own. 
called by his name. In verse 17, if, if you know these things, blessed are you if you simply know them. If you provide intellectual assent and agreement to these things, wrong. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Present tense. An ongoing, habitual act of servant-mindedness driven by the resident power of the Holy Spirit provided to you as a gift of service for His glory. Yes. So the real way to love God is not by saying, okay, okay, I'm going to do better. I know what I have to do. I'm going to get better. I'm going to make a vow. I'm going to recommit my life to Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. Wrong. Wrong. If that's the case, you will eventually fail because if it's you with this outward pursuit of trying, 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 as soon as you fail time and time again, you will want to do this. You want to beat your head against a pulpit or a wall or something because of the failure. You become self-consumed once again. There are ministries whose motto asks, what are you doing for God? That's the wrong question. Do you understand what Christ has done for you? That's the question. And in response to that understanding, we'll change the world. And it must begin within the walls of the church. It's not what are you doing for God. That kind of life is based on self-effort and you will fail right into despair. Or, if you do well for a while, you know what it leads to? I got all my check, 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 did this, did that, check, check, check. Your chin will go up. You look down your nose at other people. Pride will set in. You'll walk the line of legalism. Dangerous. So it's never about what we do for Him. It's always a matter of that which He has done for us, that which He is doing for us because of who He is. So the motivation and drive to do which honors Christ is to look back at that which Christ has accomplished for us and provides for us moment by moment, second by second. Conforming you to the image of himself. Neither is is it about what you think someone ought to have done for you. You know, oftentimes, as I conclude here, oftentimes people will seek counseling because they feel unloved. You know, such and such a person didn't treat me like I think I should be treated. I don't feel appreciated in what I'm doing. So you know what? I'm just going to quit. I'm out. The pastor didn't give me enough time. You know, he, he, I really expected him to do this or say this, and he didn't. And he didn't pursue me as I think he should have. Sometimes people will become embittered and all bent out of shape because they weren't asked into a certain role or position with some title. But perhaps they weren't asked up to this position or role with some title because they lack humility. Or perhaps they're just simply not ready. It's not time yet. So they fold their arms and shake their head and become all bitter and full of resentment. And they disappear. They don't have their eyes in the right place. It's not on Christ. It's not on Christ. All that we do 
is because of Christ, enabled by Christ, and ultimately it is for the glory of Christ. Amen? I close with this. Charles Spurgeon, quote, The Lord Jesus loves His people so much that every day He is still doing for them much that is analogous to washing their soiled feet. Their poorest actions He accepts, their deepest sorrows He feels, their slenderest wish He hears, and their every transgression He forgives. While we find comfort and peace in our Lord's daily cleansing, its legitimate influence upon us, its legitimate influence, influence upon us will be to increase our watchfulness and quicken our desire for holiness. Is it so? End quote. Is it so with you? Is that what drives you to do as Christ has done? Such service as this is a product of understanding. Understanding the love, the sacrifice, the service and the salvation of the Son of God who kneeled down, girded himself in a towel, and washed his disciples' feet. He's the only one that can bathe you in his blood, make you righteous. You understand what he's done? If so, and you know that, and you do, you will be blessed. Notice, you'll only be blessed if you know it and do it with the right motive. Understanding what he's done. And a blessed believer is one whose character bears the resemblance of humility. Humility of Christ. And that kind of humility is a byproduct of the working grace, ongoing working grace of God, and it produces joy. Joy. And that, my friends, can only occur by grace alone. Sola gratia. By faith alone, sola fide. In Christ alone, solus Christus. By Scripture alone, sola scriptura. For what? Soli Deo Gloria. For what? The glory of God alone. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never been bathed in the Holy Spirit has drawn you here to reveal that to you today. Listen now. You must repent. You must turn from your sin. You must cry out for mercy. You must believe. You must follow with the faith that he provides. He's the only way. Any perverted thinking that you have today that there's more than one way to God other than Jesus Christ, you're wrong. You must repent of that thinking today. He's the only one that can give such a bath as this. If you believe and you repent, that'll be proof that he has provided this ability, this grace to save you, to regenerate you. And you too shall become one of his own. Cool. From this point on, only need a foot washing. Amen? Call on him today. You take it up with him. For the rest of you, the church, rejoice in what he's done. A friend of mine told me that when he was saved, he read this passage of scripture and he wept. Today he came to me and he said, now I understand why I wept.
Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for initiating an eternal relationship for your own. Thank you for providing yourself as a servant of servants to lay down your life in our place. We rejoice and we thank you, and I pray that that would be the cause, the desire for us to do that which we know to be true, to serve as you served, because we can, serving one another, bearing witness of the love that has been bestowed upon us by your grace to an unbelieving world, so that when unbelievers enter through these doors, that they will recognize the love of Jesus Christ made manifest to those that are his own, loving one another. We pray for your grace to enable us to more greatly understand this truth. For your glory alone, in Jesus' name, amen.